0: Aging Sound, a podcast reflecting on theatre music, sound design, sonic practices, and experiences. Welcome to staging sound to another episode as part of the series that documents the conference Theatre Sound as collaboration which was held in September in Munich in 2023. This particular episode marks the beginning of day two of the conference and this was a session curated by Konstantinos Thomaidis and Peter Verstrate, which focused on voice in particular, and particularly in uh, on the topic of voice as collaboration of um, sort of a, a new look at what we usually think of as a singular a solipsistic, a sort of individual phenomenon, i.e. the voice, and now understanding it more as a multiple, plural, or emergent and collaborative phenomenon. Um, this particular part of the session is introduced by Peter Frastate and features three artists uh, who are called Francesco Katy uh, Kati Fanek and Alex Novitz. Enjoy the episode. <laughs>
1: We continue with the same discussion actually of uh, the voice as singularity versus uh, collaboration, so that also brings in multiplicity uh, in the in the work uh, of artists and with other artists of course, but also in relation to the audience, uh, but also in the multiplicity in the voice itself, and that is usually something that is that is done or or, or, or produced in, in relation to technologies so uh, the, the three speakers that we have today actually all will speak. In a way, also how they relate to the uh, work with uh, technologies, with media, with softwares, with AI. So the three speakers um, that I invited, uh, they go by different pronouns. If we go in in the in the line of order, uh, the first one, Francisco, uh, has uh, or identifies with the pronoun they. Kati uh, with she and Alex with he. And by that, I by no means mean that I want to go from multiplicity back to a kind of singularity in the end, ending with the man's voice uh, at all, um, because obviously all of them uh, all work actually always with uh, with the multiplicity, especially also Alex has his own manifesto on the multivocal uh, voice that I'd like to hear about as well. So Uh, Without further ado, I uh, I want to introduce uh, the first speaker, that is Francesco Bentivegna. Uh, He's a lecturer of digital theatre and creative industries at the University of Bristol. I think he is also uh, there right now, uh, I believe. He's a musician and a theatre practitioner. Uh, Their interests move between voice studies and philosophy of technology, focusing on AI, artificial voices, post-humanism, Technofeminism feminism and contemporary queer studies. They finished their PhD with a thesis uh, on synthetic voices in performance, and they have published in the field of voice studies and interdisciplinary performance studies. Francesco also has a prof- prolific solo career in the performing arts with a focus on human and machines relations through voice with the stage name. And then I, you have to help me with that. I
2: th- you can actually pronounce it as Franco-Sixia or Franco-Sixio. Doesn't matter to me. Hi, everybody. Uh, Yeah, thank you, Pieter, for um, this introduction. My name is Francesco. I'm a lecturer in Digital Theatre and Creative Industries at the University of Bristol. Uh, At the moment, I'm just trying to set everything up for this little presentation where I'm going to talk about voicing with AI. So this year, I've been invited to a couple of conferences already to talk about this topic. And for this one, I was uh, quite particularly interested in the wonderful opportunities that AI could give us alongside the horrible (laughs) things that AI mean. So before we start, I wanted to just have a look at what are the different meanings of AI uh, before we engage with the, with the juice of the talk. Uh, So the first person that I want to talk about is Matteo Pasquinelli, which is, um, Uh, an AI researcher that focuses mainly on algorithms and talks about AI as a a agglomerate of things. So a series of mathematical processes that allow us to explain stuff or to calculate stuff. So essentially is a tool. Another definition that I'd really like is one by Alex Fefega that says that AI is a tool that if left unsupervised is capable to do things that humans do better. And then finally, Kate Crawford that thinks of AI as again, a tool or a series of processes that allow us to understand how um computational system works, but also allow us to explore possibilities that we normally wouldn't have access to. Simplify things, but at the same time, Kate Crawford problematizes AI in a very specific manner. So, Clay Crawford thinks that AI is Essentially, the way that we built AI and especially the way we built digital assistant is problematic under so many levels, not only from a gendered point of view in terms of voice, but mainly from an eco-critical point of view in terms of um, exploitation or colonization via other means like technological means and technological waste creation. So these three um, forms of AI definition are the one that I want to engage with mostly, because my paper today is, it's it's not essentially a paper, it's just more of conversation around uh, what are the possibilities that AI gave us to criticize AI in the first place, and what are the possibilities that AI gave us to explore a different form of collaboration with machines. Um, So I'm going to look at it through three very quick three case studies in contemporary performance but before looking at that uh I want to explore a little bit of theoretical angle that I'm going to use and this theoretical angle starts from um one of the mothers or um, I don't know how to call it parents of posthumanism and rethinking our relationship with technologies with this She's Donna Haraway. And in her latest work in 2016, uh, she talks about making kin and making kin in a way that means as a processual approach to exploring collaboration and relational practices with non-humans. Her focus is mainly on plants and animals, but she obviously being interested in cyborgian practices and in practices of technology, Donna Haraway speaks a little bit about making kin with machines, which is then taken on by Jason Edward Lewis, which is um indigenous researcher uh, from the United States and Hawaii that uh, wrote a paper alongside other people uh, that is called Making Queen with Machines, where they try to approach artificial intelligence as a collaboration, so trying to rethink models that allow us to work with AI. So. Human is, the human is not the only model in which we base our definition of AI, but the models in which we base our definition of AI can be other things and can be essentially looking at network and not only a definition of something, but network as a practice. So in this case, we can practice a more ethically sound, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> but a more ethically sound AI by rethinking the way that we use it. So instead of just being um, either a myth of superhuman strength or a myth of productivity, it can be a tool for connectivity. It could be a tool for exploring togetherness. It could be a tool for exploring network. So these links to voice in a very specific way. I worked a lot, and in in my practice, I um, as, as a researcher and a practice as researcher, I, I worked with rethinking and writing about uh, even performances that we heard uh, right now, like remote acts or even the practice of karagwidi, from a pers- perspective that includes an in between, as defined by Costantino's himself, in between listener and voicer. So. Every voice is a voicing. Every voice is a collaboration. Every voice is a channel between two entities or more. And these entities are a speaker and a listener. They are not fixed entities. They work together and they shape what voice means together. So using voice as a model, to rethink AI means to rethink AI itself as a model of networking rather than just a tool. Um, the relationship between voice and AI is not just related to this kind of form of networking that we're going to look at a little bit later, but it's important to see how much the relation between voice and AI has always been a matter of representation. And this matter of representation has some technological links to speech synthesis and digital assistants so this is the b- biggest representation that we have of voice ai voices in contemporary everyday life so amazon alexa or google home which have synthesized voices mostly feminine voices and this is this has become the sort of idea that we have of ai so ai is a feminine voices is an assistant is a digital assistant is over here is always our, available for us. But lately, especially in the past five years, voice technology and especially voice and AI is a very, very fast field. In the past five years, something came up, which is the neural text-to-speech. The neural text-to-speech, in this case, I've included Valley, but there's also OpenAI and there's so many different um, um, forms of neural text-to-speech, which is a text-to-speech. So essentially, the basis of this one which is I have a text, I process the text through the computer and the computer the text and turn it into a vocal sound. There is a system of phonemes that reproduces something that we could ascribe to the realm of the human language. Whereas in this case, how does a neural 2ds work? Still works on phonemes, but works on phoneme conversion. So I have a text prompt. There is a listener, in this case, which is a machine, that turns the text prompt into a series uh, passes the, the text prompt through a series of encoder and is capable to reproduce a sound that is as close as possible to the text or the phoneme prompt. So if I speak into an AI, and sorry for doing this but because I believe that AI doesn't mean anything and doesn't and it's not the right word to to describe what AI is, but I'm going to use it to simplify my life and your life. So, uh, essentially the neural 2TS, so um, the large language models are capable not only to synthesize a lot of number of information in forms of text, like ChatGPT, GPT, for instance, but they're also capable of turning this text into phonemes that have previously recorded and they're capable of re, uh, transform these phonemes into an actual voice. So essentially voice cloning. How uh, theoretical field I've explored this so far as voices in the machine or voices off the machine. So voices in the machine it means that um, we imagine the AI voice as, so for instance, the voice of Amazon Alexa as a voice of somebody else inside a box or as voices of the machine, so as the proper voice of the AI. But this is problematic on so many levels. It's also limiting because it only allows us to think of the voice and the AI as one individual being that has a place and a space. So if I think of voices in the machine, these voices are part of the machine, but they're pre-recorded, they're in there, there, they are just part of the machine. If I think of voices of the machine, they are humanized, which is not what we want. Whereas the first one is more a ontological, acismatic approach to um, what what a machine is. So a machine is a ghostly presence. The second one is giving too much humanization to the machine. So turning the machine into something that is almost personified as a human. Well what I suggest in into this is to shift our attention instead of thinking of what the machine is, so what the voice is in that case, to what the voice does. So in this case is a matter of agency. And again I'm quoting Costantinos in this, looking at voicing as a processual movement between multiple agents so a vocal agent in this case, if we th- if we think of voices of AI, instead of thinking of them as voice of the machine or voice in the machine that projects mythical representation of AI, we could think of them as tools to expand the opportunities and the possibilities of the voice itself. So I suggest this as voicing with the machines or voice with AIs and how this has been explored in performance studies or especially in performances. This voicing with machines means that not only I I am a human on stage and not only I have a voice on stage, but there is some sort of augmented form of AI that allows me to voice with the machine and expand what it means to relate with machines in the first place. So I'm gonna quickly look at three performative examples so that I don't take a lot of space. The first one is in poetry, is by Paula Núñez Torres del Prado. It's called "I Elson." Uh, what Paula did was take the voice of an indigenous Peruvian poet uh, that was long lost, uh, so it's a person who died, and um, they essentially cloned the voice and made the voice read new poetry composed by Paola based on the um, Elson style of writing, but also Elson composition itself. So essentially with the work of AI, they were capable of um, reproduce this voice and reconnect with this long last human presence and allow poetry to have a new form of life of poetry that was long forgotten. In terms of performance art, there's this, I don't know if some of you might have seen it or might have experienced it. Bego Mertia's pillow talk, um, that happened, uh, in 2019, but then was stopped by COVID. Essentially, uh, you're entering this beautiful, um, uh, velvety room and it's full of pillows and you lie down on a pillow and then there's a voice, a synthetic voice that starts talks to you and it learns your name and cuddles you to sleep. Uh, wants to learn about the world and just, you're just lying there talking with the voice, collaborating in helping the voice and turning into it. So it's, I, I, the way I see it is both an allegory of the way that, um, big corporation takes our data, but at the same time, uh, Sweet and effectual relation with something that is non-human, like a pillow, or something that is non-human, like a machine, that allows us to rethink the way that we speed up our processes in everyday life. And it was beautiful also to experience this alongside other people. Although you couldn't hear what they were saying, it was nice to have this buzz in the back that would say us, oh, "We're all in this together. We're all talking with this voice together." And then, lastly, I'm gonna very briefly talk about, um, my, my own practice, which is Ariodon from 2021, where I sort of put in place uh, a day in my lockdown. So I was in this room. Uh, it was shared on, um, teams and there were people in another room with a computer where they could go up and write down things for me to do and these things would be read to me aloud by a synthetic voice in the room i wouldn't i wasn't able to see them they were able to see me and this was essentially my experience it was a double exploration the first one was to allow the people to by the fact that they're depersonalized by the computer itself to turn into a one group of people and the other objective of this work was for me to allow myself to be guided by the voice itself and trusting that behind the voice there was a human talking to me and there was a human guiding me. So this little uh, survey in performance art was just to show you how uh, either representations of AI, as in this case, or proper AI, <laughs> proper AI, <laughs> as in Paulus' case, allow us to rethink collaboration in the first place through voice. These vocal practices with artificial intelligence, not only are cool because they have a new tool that can develop weird and new sound that we couldn't approach before, but they actually allow us to rethink the way that we collaborate in the first place. This tool is capable to make us think about collaboration, or at least give us a way in to new forms of collaboration that could spread out. Before I finish, very extremely quickly, other three um, non-performative, so in other fields, practices that make use of voice and AI collaboration. The first one is a process of spawning created by Holly Hurden. Obviously, some of you might know this. Also, Holly has been named as 100 more influential people in the AI studies by the time. So, wow, well done. Um, but Holly created this, um, two things. One is Holly plus, which is this free uh, tool that she put in the market where people could use a uh, voice clone of Holly to compose music with her. And then, uh, spawning, which is this practice of extracting ethically, uh, human sound to compose a new voice that is completely new. That is not, uh, based on someone else's voice, but it's based on communal practices. Uh, then there's work of Queering AI uh, done by the Feminist Internet Archive that is um, trying to rethink the way that we gendered every time um, AI voices. And they're doing this through this uh, digital assistant that is not gendered. And the voice has been composed with a lot of trans people to see what was the um, w- the most representative voice that was essentially non-binary and has been done by another company in Copenhagen called Q. And then finally, another work in AI Memory Beautiful, it's called No Show, Just a Voice by um, Teresa Pelinski, where she recorded her dad, long uh, old radio recording of her dad. And she recomposed them through voice cloning to have some sort of memory of her dad alongside. So yeah, essentially this is what I want to talk about. So it's more of a provocation for all of us to think, okay, instead of seeing AI as a myth of superhuman force that's going to conquer us all, or as a tool in the hands of only um, big tech corporate, we can think of voice and AI, especially voice and AI as forms of collaboration. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Francisco. It was very eloquent and it was uh, a right on time, so I'm I'm super happy about that. I would allow for one question, and then at the end we have more time for, for a panel discussion between all the artists and then more questions. So if there's, if there's any question from the room, I'll uh, look at uh, David. You haven't
0: been here in the room with us, but so this is an extension of, of the discussions we already had here or the experiences we've had, and it, it kind of struck me again in your talk how with the advancement of those technologies and this sort of, um, you know, pioneering AI, cetera, there seems to be quite often, in terms of the thematic use of them, um, focus on the, on parenthood, on memory, on birth, death, and um, you know, sort of very personal and often quite intimate, familial situations. So I was just struck or, or or wondering whether that's a coincidence or or whether that kind of uh, relationship, that kind of tension between, um, the machine, sort of the impersonal, the, you know, whatever cliche you might employ and the most personal, you know, how they, how they go together and how that, um, relates in your, I mean, again, your, your, your own.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's, it's something that I've been, um, wrestling with <laughs> throughout both my PhD and currently the things that I'm writing now, because the level of intimacy that these forms of technology further in humans is in itself uncanny. It's confusing. A a little example that is not related with voice, but is related with me because essentially I don't have an answer to this because it's yes. There is a lot of intimate impact in relation to voice AI. I can see it happening, especially with people like Holly Herden, that what she clones is her own voice. So you, or the practices of Jaume Ferrete Velasquez, when he worked with a double or clone of his own voice, but even really many protocol work on uncanny, uh, where you have a complete copy of the same actor on stage. So I think that what, if nothing, this can tell us that instead of just having them, mm, I'm going to go all Fisher in this, okay. Instead of having this ontological fear that the only thing that we got from technology is a lost future. I think that what all of these practices tell us is that what we can get from technology is a deeper connection with ourself. How do we do that? I don't know. How do we do that without relinquishing data or sensible data or relinquishing privacy. I have no idea, but what this can tell us is we might be able to shift and change the approach that we have to technology. Instead of focusing them on mass production and constant productivity, we could think and rethink of technologies themselves as more capable to create collaborative approaches to life and more capable to create effective relations between humans. But again, this is just a message that I see that I hear in this case and I feel by seeing of the practices rather than a solution. And also thank you for the question. Now I thought about this. I'm going to write this down and I'm going to write a paper on it. No, I'm just. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Definitely food for thought. Thank you, Francesco. I think this uh, ties in very well with the next presenter. So I invited uh, also a good uh, friend and colleague of mine, Katy van Eck, um, who is in Zurich right now. She's a composer, artist and researcher, uh, particularly in performative uh, sound art. She focuses on composing relationships between everyday objects, human performance and sound. Her artistic work includes performances with live electronics and installations, with everyday objects, Cathy was uh, has currently um, uh, started or is is doing a, a permanent uh, teaching position at the Department uh, for Sound Arts of the Academy of the Arts in Bern in Switzerland. Her book uh, "Between Air and Electricity: Microphones and Loudspeakers as Musical Instruments" has been published in 2017, and I I, I can really uh, recommend uh, having that book on the, on your shelves. Um, so with. Uh, no further ado I want uh, Cathy to to, uh, to step forward and, and speak
3: Thank you Peter, for this introduction so my title is Artificial Voices and Real Bodies When Do We Speak? I continue a bit on uh, this idea of, of speech as a collaboration as we have listeners who listen and only then we hear a voice I made a picture yesterday, when I joined yesterday, actually, you were just listening to something on the headphones. So I joined, but I didn't, I didn't hear anything, but I saw the audience sitting like this and I was like, it's clear they don't have a break because you see all bodies are in listening positions. I also liked how a lot of people are listening like this with the hat a bit tilted. So you see, they're listening to something. They were then indeed listening to something. And I'm interested in this kind of uh, positions in actions of our bodies, which show to us that, that, um, that, which have a kind of meaning and which I then can fill with sounds to evoke a meaning of this. Um, Today, I will mainly talk about two works of mine where I use this kind of positions, and these positions and actions I use are are mainly related to, I would say, in a very basic way to talking, to singing, etc. Because one of the main things they do in the pieces, what the performers do, is holding a microphone and moving the microphone to the mouth in a way. And that's one of the main gestures they do. As Peter said, I come from composition, so I I, I come from sound and um, that, that's also how I how I work. I work a lot with electronic sounds in the broadest way, so that can be uh, recorded sounds being processed in all kinds of ways. It can be synthesized, etc. And that's also what I do in these two pieces. Um, and I use the microphone movement as a starting point for that. But during the whole piece, none of the performance is making anything any sound with their voice. That's also why I say artificial voice. All sounds are coming from a loudspeaker, which they held in front of their mouth. So their mouth is, um, kind of replaced by a loudspeaker. So I feel the silence of our body positions and movements, which are created by not saying anything anymore with sounds. And I made kind of three, um, I would say ideas which are important for the two pieces I discuss this is the first idea the second one is I create different sounds for the same kinds of movements an impossibility in the physical world because that's one of the things which I like is as soon as I start to use to make sounds for a special movement I can of course create all kinds of sounds I um, in the physical world I know that when I I take a microphone and I I would amplify my sound. It's, it's just amplifying. Or if I clap my hands, it's it's going to sound like a hand clap. I can't really check. yes, I can learn to clap very well, and it can make a lot of different sounds, but it will never be a duck quacking or something like that. But it would be quite easy with technology to make something where I clap my hand, and every time I clap, I hear quack, 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 right? So that's one of the things why I like to work with these kind of setups, using electricity to connect the physical world to my software in the computer. And then the third idea is, sounds are the most detailed differentiators and worked out layers of these works. That's what I said before already, I come from composition, so I'm really thinking from sound out. And I also try to make these position on postures, the listening we saw or the talking with the microphone, to. Make them as minimal as possible, so that sound can add a layer of its own. Then that sound becomes the main, I would say, narrative in a way. It's a bit dangerous to say that because, it, uh, as you see, and that's always for me one of the problematic parts. Is it's nearly talking in words words about what sound should do is nearly impossible because, um, in the end, it, it's something specific what sound can do. So, so I'm I'm kind of um, Out out of the the world of sound, it's it's the untalkable because it's it should be sound what is doing something. I'll tell a bit more about that later on. There are two works, as I said. One is song number three. It's quite an old work. It's thirteen years old now. And the second one is from last year. It's called Words, Words, Words. They're very much they're very similar to each other in the setup, and they they relate also in subject because they're both about this talking as you see here, I have a microphone in my hand. I have the loudspeaker in front of my mouth. And as you see, uh, it has been attached to my head. As you see, the loudspeaker has a white paper glued on the loudspeaker, so you also don't really see my head. It's not meant as completely hiding me because sometimes I turn a bit and then you see a bit of me, but it's, it's meant as a kind of, yeah, this is, this is in, there instead of my mouth. If we then go to what the piece does is that technically the distance between the microphone and the loudspeaker that's what i change all the time right i can move in all kind of and in that way i control the computer sounds so people who have a a bit more knowledge on on technology uh, it's following the loudness the amplitude of the microphone and in that way i can say for example if the microphone is far away and doesn't hear a lot of the loudspeaker, then I play this sample, or then I do this kind of synthesis, or then I do this, I can control all kinds of things. So it's like a MIDI controller, but a very basic one. And I change it during the piece. So when I start to fill the silence of our body position and movements with sounds of this performance, song number three, which is just for one performer, I performed it quite often, but also other people did it and it tends to be quite a different performance then uh, because they have other body movements, they move in a different way. I filled it first with sounds and my idea was to use sounds that are related or m- might remind us of talking, of discussing, of singing, of asking, of lecturing, of emotional speaking, etc. but never really use the sounds. For this, so I, it's never that you don't recognize. Oh, someone is talking. If you listen to the beginning of the piece, you hear something like. <laughs> so it's ununderstandable. It's not a voice doing it. It's it's a computer sound, so to say, or electronic sounds. And at a certain moment, you hear something like a sound which we relate with the voice, but it is a computer sound. So I I try out like how how well. Can I play these sounds? How can I relate to them, etc.? So that's how I fill the silence of these body positions with other sounds than what they usually would be. What is also important to say that I never use speech in here because as soon as I would use a word, the hierarchy would of course completely flip and the word would win immediately. So I need all kinds of sounds which sounds speech-like, but never ever anything which is close to a word, because then we start our whole listening starts to listen for semantics. Um, here are the different movements. There are not so much movements like there's moving, moving microphone to the mouth. There are many different ways to do that. And that's also one of the things which I tried and to develop in the piece. How do I move the microphone to the mouth? How do I move? my arms when i'm singing it's quite different if i just do like this or if i make bigger movements or also making speech support movements with my hand if i say something like this then it's also a speech for movement, but it's not so much and that these are the movements for which i then create different sounds so i relate them i can for example say oh i move the microphone to to my mouth the first time it's like <laughs> The second time I change that sound a bit it's going to be the third time uh, again something different etc that's how the whole actually the computer counts with me so I know that the computer ah this is the first time I say something now it's going to make this sound the second time and I know also Ah, after nine times he's really going to change the computer because he has counted with me the computer never makes a mistake but I do sometimes Uh, and then the third thing sounds are the most detailed uh, differentiate and worked out layer of these works. So what I, these are the sounds I didn't indeed use. These are what I said before, the speech like noises, I try to sing on one note. There's one part where I try, try to sing it. It's also my performance are very often. I'm of course not a capable performer on stage. I'm not a virtuoso, I'm not doing anything which is uh, on the contrary. I'm, I completely fail all the time there own stage because it that's it's not about making beautiful music it's not about doing something very impressive which no one else can do it's um no i wouldn't say it's not it's easy to <laughs> to, to perform it but um in a way because you have to to try to be for example not too theatrical, one of the things when other people play my, this piece, I often say like, don't be too theatrical, don't put too much in your gestures, because if you put too much in your gestures, you take away everything, what the sound says, the less you put in your gestures, the more you, you get out of the sound. But of course, if you don't put anything in your gestures anymore, then that connection between gestures and sound is gone. So I think that's the balance to try. Here we see the score. And as you see, it's just it's very um, quite open in the sense that a lot happens because of the interaction. Then what you also see is that I do use a lot of metaphors in the score, like talking noises, like it is as if you're talking. Evidently, that's not something the audience knows. Perhaps they don't think it's talking at all. That's uh, not, not something I can really force them to think. As you see later on again, just from the score there, there are also like singing noises, opera singing, we're gonna, is, these are, metaphors. Nobody in the audience have to think opera on the contrary. I think I would, I would find it really problematic if everybody in the audience would think this is opera, then I would think, oh, I've done something wrong. It should be something where you feel like, well, perhaps this is some kind of singing. Um, so th- this is where I try to uh, I try to make a piece on without any, ever using my voice, but using gestures and sounds which reminds of of voice use in two thousand twenty two I'll jump this one. I made another piece with a very similar setup. It's not completely the same because the performers have the loudspeaker in their hands. It's not soft paper but cardboard. And they have uh, all a microphone, so five of them. And I decided this time I want to do that again, but now I want to go to try to have use sounds which are not related even to abstract speech anymore. So I did something where it starts with a kind of, um, yeah, it, it's, it's still a, a kind of a choir. They are, their movements are kind of talking, singing. They just move their microphone to their mouth and they can, because they have the mask in their hands can also move away the mask, which I like because then you can also really see they're not singing. And then they use sounds organ like sounds again, here, the names are a bit, uh, it sounds a bit like wind, like chords synthesizer. And here we see a bit of the beginning when they start. And so they just do as if like, they take a speaking gesture, bring the microphone to their mouth, but you hear something, which I would say it's a kind of electrical organ. So here it's again, it's, these are not capable virtuoso performers. It's like playing one note on an organ, right? That's more or less, well, well, a bit out of tune organ even. it's like, "Ah, ah," That's what they are playing. And in the next part that I, what I did in this piece is that I, sometimes I do use human voices, but just when it's clear that they are not saying anything. So here you hear the human voices coming in again, Ununderstandable, of course, because if you would understand the word, then it's, uh, you get out of the abstract power, I would nearly say, <laughs> or you, you or you, 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 there, there's too much in it. So then as soon as you have a word there and you would understand it, everything else would de- be devaluated. They are not saying anything, they have their mouth closed, but you do hear whispering un- understandable. and then I also tried to get really out of how far can I go with body movements, controlling these sounds and, and other sounds and, and where's the crossing the border of are they, they're really not speaking, they're really not singing, but what are they doing then? Uh, and I used some kind of wind sounds for doing that. This is a part of the school so you see but I do again as if you're talking with the microphone is in the school. In the rehearsal, this was a place where I said like forget the talking. You have to really play with the sound in this part because it looks ridiculous when you're talking and I don't believe you anyway. I always call called wind and try as if you're the wind and and listen with your so that's a point where what i often say also when working with performance like listen to what you're doing and yes it's important that you don't get completely weird with your movements that they have no relation anymore with what you're doing so that's why they're and they're around the loudspeaker but they move away so that were my two examples of um using artificial voices with real bodies and uh thank you for listening
0: thank you
1: thank you kathy and uh, that was a, a very masterful <laughs> uh presentation without any failure uh so thank you for that I'm, I'm really happy so again we can allow for i think one question um, so that we can move on in like three four minutes maybe Lily, go ahead
4: it's sort of a quite a mechanistic question but what's the work um, because what you end up with is a series of instructions, and effectively, I, I suppose, a computer program. And you've got performers that are could be robots, but aren't in this case. They are they are human bodies. And so I'm sort of thinking, well, how are we defining what a work is anymore? Um, and I don't mean that in a, in a sort of a rude way. What I'm thinking is in terms of, well, we've moved from from written scores, we've moved to graphic scores, we've moved to uh, instructional processes, and I'm just sort of thinking, so how can another person take over? I, I was struck by the first example, particularly, where Cathy uh, told us that um, she'd created it on herself and then another performer took over. And I'm wondering, how does that work in terms of, you know, what you've got, what the framework is and and, and the use of the microphone, and if that person would naturally have slightly different gestures do you then have to reprogram, and is that still the work? So uh, it's sort of a, a very vague and, and rather mechanistic question. No, it's
3: a, yeah, it's a very good twice question. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think what's very important it's it's the other way around. The program is there, the software, and it's gonna react on what you're gonna do. And my experience with performance is that it, it's it's like a musical instrument, but what you play, it's a bit well. The the what is easier than a musical instrument is that a lot of things can't go really wrong so in the beginning if you bring the the, you will say something if you bring the microphone to your mouth and if you take it away again you will say again it will stop talking so that will so if i would rehearse with you i would let you try out and get to know the system and you would come up with oh yeah wait with for this uh, i'm gonna do this movement then it sounds like this and if i take the microphone a bit more like this oh okay yeah so you, it would naturally you would actually start to adopt your gestures to the system, but the system is quite like, how would I say, it's quite friendly. So <laughs> it's reacting on you. So uh, that's also why it couldn't be robots at all, because I need musicians. I need people who are used to listen, and I m- need musicians who are interested in body work. So the, the people with whom I, I worked the last, um, the, the, with the five people, these are students, Doing a, a master in, uh, in of spe- specialized performance, whatever, in in Lucerne, but they are all musicians because they need to listen and they need to to hear. Ah, wait, I'm, and that's what musicians are super good in because they're super good in when I make this movement, it sounds like that. That's how we learn to play piano or violin, right? You remark, oh wait, when I pr- do a lot of bow pressure, it sounds different than when I use a lot. Uh, very when I play soft, it's different. Ah, okay, and that's the same thing. That's how the system works. What you can't do is—it's—it's it's a bit a different system than a than a musical instrument because what you can't do is I can't play a scale on it, but I can play different sounds. You're—you're you're giving them more agency than I'm thinking they have. Yeah, yeah. much more agency. That's—that's why, and I understand because that's one of the things with electronics we're not used to. Right when we are, when we have a phone, you don't have so much agency over the phone. I mean, even if the phone wants to give you the impression in the end, you're just doing tack, 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 or you're turning the screen, but I'm giving, so they have quite a lot of agency, but a different one than what you normally have. They have a lot in time. They can change a lot in when do I do what, but they can't. Decide now. I play uh, this nice chord.
1: Yeah, I think the the question of agency was already uh, coming from Francesco's talk. It's now uh, coming to the same point again. And obviously, after the death of the author, the idea of the composer's voice—how how much agency do you allow? And um, and, and and the performative uh, performance art or sound art that you pr- produce allows for that. So so I think uh, that that is a wonderful uh, display and and. and Uh, explanation and uh, we can talk about it uh, further because I think this ties in very well also with Alex Nowitz's practice as a a sound artist too. So let me then introduce uh, Alex. Uh, Thank you, uh, Cathy. Uh, Alex Nowitz is a composer and vocal performance artist from from Germany, uh, based in Potsdam. In his vocal performance art and in his compositions, he explores the notion of multi-vocality. Um, He often presents extended vocal performance art uh, by applying custom wireless and gesture-controlled live electronics. Most notably, a new instrument that was produced uh, for him or with him at Stem in Amsterdam uh, when it still had the money to do so, uh, the Strophonion. In 2019, he released his dissertation Monsters I Love on multivocal arts. It's uh, in open access, so everybody can... uh, uh, can 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 read it. I think the, the link might be there already on our website. Uh, based on his on this uh, work, he was awarded a doctoral degree at the Stockholm University of the Arts. Um, he is currently curating uh, the second edition. I saw the first edition, so I'm very very uh, excited to see maybe the second edition too of the Designing Voices uh, Festival under the title. Vocal Actionum. Alex uh, uh, is going to present, I think, in a more performative free way under the title Hierarchical Systems and Multivocal Arts Reflections on the Practices in Different Territories of the Performing Arts. Okay, the floor is yours.
5: Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you uh, so much for inviting me to this uh, wonderful conference. When Peter asked me uh, to present uh, my work, I'm always kind of um, in between because I, I consider myself composer and uh, vocal performance artist. So. Uh, um, a practitioner who's on stage who composes for other people but then again I'm also um, interested in artistic research and what are the impacts of our doing and possibly the philosophical background of of what we are actually um, presenting. Um, The other idea was also that uh, Peter asked me to to reflect on my experiences uh, uh, along the way and um, Along those 30 years of of artistic uh, practice, I made certain experiences in in the field of uh, the opera as a composer of two operas in the field of speech theater um, and in the field of dance theater. And they all have their own rules. They all have their uh, own um, practices. When it comes, especially with regard to um, the question of collaboration and how do we actually collaborate together, and that's why I came up with the with the term of hierarchical systems. If there is a degree of different hierarchical systems, there would be on the left, on the very left side, the opera and the apparatus of the opera. If you as a composer, work for the opera it is um, it couldn 't be more hierarchical, really. Everything is already set up before you start composing your piece and If you want your piece to work out, you have to follow the rules of this apparatus otherwise it 's a frustration for everyone involved it 's a frustration for the composer um and and it, it, there's nothing coming across i uh, presume unless you you want to tear down the whole apparatus and the, the whole um, idea of the opera system the next one in my perspective and i have i've made these uh, experiences um, as a composer you see um for the first first opera the best man opera the opera on the best man which is a which is an opera about the historical figure of Alois Brunner, who was uh, one of the main perpetrators of the Third Reich. So he was a Nazi criminal and he was never brought to court. And that was put on stage of the opera. And it's a two hours, 15 minutes long piece. And I delivered my uh, score, but then the conductor didn't want me to be (laughs) at the rehearsals. Only at the very end, I could attend the rehearsals or um, um, participate. Uh, Not so much with the director, he was uh, more open to let me in um, to to give feedback to the uh, rehearsing process. So in the end, it turned out really well. It turned out uh, that the opera was interpreted in the way I was uh, um, envisioning it. But it was kind of, um, yeah, it was in in a way excluding, uh, or I felt excluded from the rehearsal process, which I'm not used to since I'm a musician myself. I'm a vocal performer myself, uh, collaborating with other musicians and other vocal performers. And um, this was new. This was a new thing for me to learn, to step back and let them the work do. And then I come in later and then I can give feedback, so to say. Then the next experiences uh, I made uh, on the speech theater stage collaborating um, or working for Thomas Ostermeier um, at the Schaubühne in Berlin, we made three projects Together one was The Summer Night's Dream, and the other two were The Cut um, by Mark Ravenhill and uh The City by Martin Krimp. And there it is a very hierarchical system, too, um, 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 the, what, what you as a, an artist uh, follow during uh, the rehearsal process is the narrative of the play and therefore uh, the narrative of the director or the vision of the director. So you make a lot of offers and, and one of those offers eventually will be picked by the director. And then you go along with these offers and they might even drop out at some point. Again, you just start to do another offer. This needs the most adapting quality f- from, from, from an artistic point of view to me. The Cut and the, the, the City, both plays were presented within one evening. So it was one uh, one ticket you buy uh, as an audience member. And for the opening, um, I was in the room and I performed in this room on a pillar. The pillar was uh, moving up and down. So and the audience was around me and I had complete freedom to shape the time and the music and the sound there as I uh, uh, envisioned it myself. So in other words, once there is no narrative of a specific play, the can be uh, um, completely open to n- new ideas. But um, my experience was most of the time that I had to follow the director's mind. The third experience or the third category was a dance. I did um, Screaming Popes together with uh, the choreographer from Toronto, marie Jose Chartier, um, there was a co-production between her and the Fabrik Potsdam at that time. It was premiered in Toronto. And there were three male uh, dancers on stage. I was also on stage accompanying them as a musician, but also in costume. And that was, of course, much more uh, open in terms of um, collaboration. The choreographer, in this case, has more the role of uh, mediator. Uh, and leading the process into the direction that she um, felt okay with. And in that sense, this was the most uh, uh, collaborative uh, project I was involved with. So um, on my personal degree of experiences, opera on the very left side, then speech theater, and then uh, dance theater, so, um, it was, um, it was in a sense in 2007 that I had a chance to completely shift my focus towards other things when I was invited to an orientation workshop at Stein. Peter already mentioned it the studio for electro instrumental music. Um, and there I learned how to integrate um, musical interfaces, uh, digital interfaces to uh, extend the voice or to manipulate the voice and work with the voice differently than I used to before that. And since then, I, I'm basically when I'm doing solo performances, I'm using um, um, those um, Life electronics, mostly gesture controlled life electronics. But the concept of uh, multivocality, or the thinking about uh, the potentialities of multivocal arts, or in specific, the concept of the multivocal voice that I c- came up with, is something that already began before using life electronics. So it was during my doctorate in in Stockholm when I uh, wrote uh, the manifesto for the multivocal voice to lay down the premises and the principles of a voice, a performance voice that goes beyond the usual, that goes uh, beyond the one register voice as we know it in, in Western tradition. And this one register voice uh, appears in all kinds of genre, be it the bel canto voice or the rock voice or the jazz voice. It's all um, condensed in into one, two, may, sometimes maybe three octaves, but that's about it. But if we look at the voice as a multivocal voice, as a voice that... Has not only one voice inhabits not only one voice but many voices. We are discovering many more possibilities to express ourselves. And I have, for for the for the sake of uh, of um, defining my own voice and my own vocal apparatus, I've uh, looked it through, and um, the range is six octaves. And why is that? Because I um, include also the low tone singing technique from Mongolia, or as we know it from Tibetan chanting, or um, the practice uh, of the basu in the Sardinian practice of the canto di tenores. It is a a voice that is not produced with the vocal folds, but a lower part of the muscular system, uh, the ventricular folds, and that sounds like
0: that
5: of course, it is very tough to produce that sound um, um, during a talk um, that has um, a lot of mental reasons and um, you have to relax and you use other muscles, so, so, but you get an idea what that voice is. And then if I count as well the upper piercing register of the whistling voice, then I, I'm, I'm entering the realm of the piccolo flute in, in, if I go really high. So in, in this sense, I have five, six octaves available, but of course with gaps and with a lot of disruptions, but it is a multi-register voice. And that is very important uh, to me before I was using uh, electronics and technology to extend the voice even on that with, with those uh, possibilities. So, but this is a practice that I was always using um, for the last uh twenty five years, and um, once I had the chance to develop uh, new controllers to extend the voice um, also by extracting the voice, sampling the voice, extracting it, and then playing with the sampled result with my hands and arms um. I was also able to extend the voice by my body and by bodily means. And to get an idea what I'm actually talking about, I think it would be a good idea to now play the video untitled. Yeah, it gives an idea what's happening. So I'm producing sounds with the voice. I'm recording it. And then in the next moment, I'm playing with those sounds, either manipulated or not, and then interacting with that voice again. And this is like looking into a mirror, but only by acoustical means. It is um, a way to talk with yourself in a way, but it is. A bit, uh, and Francesco was touching upon that, it is a bit talking with my own ghost because what am I uh, working with is is basically dead material. It's, it's not really life. It is re- the, my own recorded voice, but it is reanimated through the gestures that I'm applying to steer the sound and control the sound. Maybe, maybe I finish off with with the definition as I uh, look at the multi vocal voice. And the definition is very simple. If we think about what a performance voice can be, it is either, and that would be the first category. It's a singing. It's a singing uh, voice, and that can be all kinds of singing uh, uh, techniques or genres that we apply. Then. There is, and that is a little bit different, the speaking voice. If we think of the actor's voice, also vers- very versatile, can uh, have its own kind of colors and timbres. Then the third category is the extended voice, as you just experienced. This, this uh, particular voice is uh, using uh, extended vocal techniques on the one hand, but it can, you can also apply uh, technological means. And the fourth category is the disembodied voice, is the voice that comes out of loudspeakers and we don't uh, relate um, to a specific body any longer um, as the sound, as it appears. Um, And if all these four categories come together, that is basically the definition for me, the main core of uh, what I call the multi
1: vocal voice. Thank you. Thank you, you.
5: Thank you for your attention.
1: <laughs> yes. It was very multivocal and it gave us a, a, a wide range of, of,
0: of all your experiences. Uh, Millie, has got a question.
4: Again, uh, almost a similar question. Sort of, I, I'm getting my head around this idea that what's happening is that you have a, a system through which you have effectively a, a prosthetic instrument, which is a wonderful opportunity for improvisation. And in this case... Um, it seemed like the voice was still, even though it was the sampled and processed and, and reproduced voice, that the dead voice, as you referred to it. I this because we're in this room and we're getting the sound as we're getting it, it seemed like it was still coming from the same area. So is sound design a huge factor in in how we understand this multivocal voice as all appearing to come from your body? Um, or on a stage would you try to separate those um, various iterations of multivocality?
5: Thank you for that question, that's very interesting. Um, uh, I have a setup for quadrophonic use of the sound so I can de- determine where each voice comes out of what loudspeaker. But for practicality reasons, and if I'm getting involved to do a concert at night, so you arrive there the day of the concert, it needs to be simple. And so I'm basically move the step back again and um, perform usually through a stereophonic um, um, amplification system. Um, So in, in a way, the live voice And the recorded voice, let's call it this, the recorded voice, um, they come out of the same speaker. So it is actually up to the audience during the actual performance situation to decipher which is which, what is the live voice and what is the clone. Of course, in my performance practice, my interest is to blend those two and to make make it kind of magical, if you want to say so. Um, And there are moments that if I'm getting really into the zone of performance, I'm kind of losing it too. Oh, where is this sound coming from? Uh, Oh, no, this is, I made this, but... uh, this is coming out of the last week, so it must be the clone. But and sometimes there are funny um, there are funny feedbacks uh, happening in the specific uh, due to the specifics of the, the room. Um, so, but it is even more um, difficult, I guess, for the audience to tell which is the original voice and which is its 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 clone. But uh, playing with exactly that kind of merge is what interests me and it, which, which actually makes, helps me expanding the field of vocal performance art in the end.
4: And I guess then the, the follow-up question, sorry, Peter, very quickly, it, could it be that your, your prosthetic instrument allows you to, with your quadraphonic speakers or whatever, um, to move the sound around deliberately so that your voice appears, your, your live voice appears to come from somewhere else, whereas your your sampled voice comes from the place that appears to be your body. I mean, uh, would you go that far? And, and is, is that useful?
5: yes i could do that uh, again if uh, the circumstances allow i'm 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 trying to do that in the theater space it's more practical because then you have rehearsal time to set it up in that specific uh sense but in the normal the normal Business, So to say of uh, presenting concerts, you don't have much uh, or I don't have much uh, rehearsal time. And that's when I uh, go for a simple PA, stereophonic PA system. And then I don't split the two, they come out of the same speakers, and you have to do the work as an audience member, <laughs>
0: so to say. Salva has a question.
6: Yeah, it's not so much a question, it's kind of an observation and I find it was, and there probably is at least a discussion point to be had between all three presentations. There was this moment of, there's a hierarchy in the opera house. There is a a hierarchy or a, a sort of a power reality being created through AI or what I'd maybe rather call machine learning. And then there is resistance. And I think there was something really interesting as, as the potential between all three, which I particularly felt in Cathy's in, in talk, because AI or machine learning has over the last, the whole pandemic learned from our bodies to get rid of our bodies. So the Zoom, every time we went on Zoom, our voices became more semantic, more cleared out, hence all the noises we make, as you said, Cathy, couldn't be heard because if somebody has to Zoom filters on, our our bodies aren't there anymore, and sort of I felt there was a, a kind of a potential for resistance through all three proposals against those hierarchies. Because I'm very unhappy with opera houses. Um, I'm I'm very unhappy. I mean, I have to say, I would like to make a plethora of just for one year, have no dead white men, played in opera houses and see what happens. But that's, you know, that's a dream. That's not going to happen. But I think it'd be interesting what happens to our ears and our expectations. But I wonder, do you feel there is, beyond the aesthetic, a potential for resistance to some of those technological, political, ideological power structures that you're, to a degree, working within
5: in your
1: And this is a question to all three, I guess. No, who wants to go first? Maybe Alex.
5: Well, yes, um, definitely. Once, once you're going, um, once you're working outside the box, so to say, and you open up yourself to new possibilities and new ways of performing, basically. Um, And in this case, in my case, uh, using the technological power. To enhance the performance situation, I can then of course, reframe the whole setting, and one of the motivation is for sure to uh, resist the, the conventional um, setting as it is as I said as it is in the opera house or with the narrative of the play, etc cetera, etc cetera. so the Reframing of the setting is, I think, very crucial, and it is very crucial also to to then you have also other arguments because you say, well, if we want to do this piece, uh, and and then we have to adapt to my way of working, right? And and so every time I, I send in a tech writer, I say I need forty five minutes to set up and forty five minutes to do a sound check, but that sound check only happens if it's complete silent in the room. Because I had sound checks where everybody does anything else or in the stage designer does the setup and whatsoever, but I stopped doing the sound check if that is not possible. So um, this is just a, a very tiny little example how we can shape the setting to our needs. We have needs as uh, artists uh, but it is each apparatus we are entering, each performance center has its own kind of rules so you have to adapt to that a little and then find your way uh, to deal with it.
1: Thank you Alex and maybe uh, we can also listen to Katy or Francesco uh, since the question was also addressed to you. Katy.
3: Yes, I find this always a very difficult but also very important question I think for me, one of the things which is important is, is this um, idea to listen different to a body that is talking and how can I make the body in such a way that I find a different language than what I can listen to usually. So that's, that's what I try. And that's also means that it's not going to be comfortable music. And that implies also there. there's, for example, also not, it's not a piece where I say, oh yeah, I can also make an album out of it. It's gonna be a record. It's, so it's it's never gonna be a sellable object. It's not gonna be something which can be fixed. It can actually also not be shown through video. So there in a way, uh, I'm not completely, um, there's, by the way, there's even a recording of this piece, which is on CD, which is complete nonsense, but someone made it at some point. But that's not, that's not the work. The work is just the thing there happening. It it also doesn't use PA loudspeaker. So it's just a, a small loudspeaker. So it can also not be done in a big hole. It's it's for not many people listening together. And this kind of listening is for me very important because we're so used nowadays to listen through loudspeakers which have been set up in a well in a computer or in headphones or in often in, if, if we look at how we, we have equipped our, our world sonically it's very very bad visual it's perhaps already not complete but sonically it's it's really poor what we have done it's always a difficult question because i feel like okay if i really wanted to do resistance i should uh, go into politics and uh, but so there's something more I, I also believe in being able to to do something that's why i also don't work with words is because what i like is to do something where it's i can't point my finger on it It's about thinking sonically.
1: And maybe the question of resistance also um, relates to Francesco, but I also want to immediately then uh, read the the other question that is uh, there in the chat for you, um, so we can maybe combine uh, those answers. So uh, Francesco, maybe we can read together. Um, This is a question from Monica who says, if still possible, she wants to ask, but yes, I allow. I'm still thinking about the cozy and familiar atmospheres related to artificial intelligence soundscapes, Mentioned by Professor Rösner, is there a need to create fictive artificial soundscapes as new acoustic homelands, for instance, comparable to fictive visual worlds?
2: Uh, Wow, wonderful, wonderful question both. And I think they're very related in a way that if um, so, to any of you that is... um, interested in artificial intelligence there is a book by um, Dan McQuillan called Resisting AI that um, rethinks the way that we approach artificial intelligence as a form of resistance so first of all we don't actually need machine learning for a lot of the things that we use machine learning for but there are ways in which machine learning can help us rethink and reimagine things that are not achievable without machine learning what I mean by that I mean uh, there are possibilities with AI voices that allow us to think of uh, what our voices can do, and or to link back to Alex. There are things that AI voices can teach us and turn us into multiple and um, possibilities that we would normally not be able to understand or think about our voices. And now I'm just speculating, obviously, but I think that. What AI could be actually very useful is not uh, taking over humanity in any way, shape or form, but allow us to uh, expand our knowledge, allow us to expand our possibilities, because obviously... Uh, not all of us are capable to put things into words, or not all of us are capable to imagine vividly because we haven't been trained as much, or because we uh, didn't, was, we're not privileged to uh, to have access to things that allow us to do so. Whereas AI could help us and could help the majority of us to speculate freely and imagine freely. Obviously, this is again a speculation in itself because. What machine learning is and is used for at the moment is essentially processes that allow big tech corporation to get more money. So it's not, it's not what the situation of AI is at the moment, but it's where the potential lays in my opinion
1: thank you and on that note i think um i think we should uh, leave it at that uh, i want to thank everybody this was a definitely a collaborative effort and uh, the result uh, is is to be seen and to be heard um so thanks for for being in the space so along with us and for listening and for contributing and for thinking along with us thank you and thanks also to constantinos uh, uh,